podcast. My name is Michelle and today we have a podcast from Professor William Ledger. Professor Ledger is a head of the discipline of obstetrics and gynaecology in the School of Women's and Children's Health at the University of New South Wales. He is the director of the Department of Reproductive Medicine and senior obstetrician and gynaecologist at the Royal Hospital for Women's. He is also director of research and development with IVF Australia in Sydney. This podcast discusses the use of assisted reproductive technology as a means of helping to treat couples with problems of infertility. I'd refer you to the ANZARD database, which is um, curated through University of New South Wales by the National Perinatal Epidemiology and Statistics Unit, headed by Professor Georgina Chambers. And this provides a wealth of information about the outcomes of IVF treatments across Australia and later this year, for the first time, we'll have clinic-specific data uh, for each of the IVF centres, which will be in keeping with data provided by SART in the US and HFEA in the UK. So the basic principles of IVF are quite simple. We use injection of FSH, gonadotrophin, to stimulate multifollicular development. We avoid premature ovulation of these follicles using a GnRH agonist or antagonist. We trigger final oocyte maturation when the follicles have reached the correct size using HCG as an analogue of LH or using a GnRH agonist if we have used the antagonist to regulate the cycle. The oocytes are then mature 36 hours after the trigger. An egg collection is then performed using ultrasound-guided transvaginal needle aspiration of follicles. Oocytes are isolated from the follicular fluid by an embryologist who's in the operating theatre with a microscope. The surrounding cumulus cells are stripped from the egg, and the egg is then fertilised either by IVF, using approximately 50,000 sperm placed with each egg for fertilisation to occur naturally, or using ICSI, intracytoplasmic sperm injection, in which one sperm is injected into the egg. The fertilised egg is cultured for anything between two to five days, but in 2020, preferentially, we would transfer a single blastocyst on day five after egg collection. The endometrium is then supported in the luteal phase by giving either progesterone vaginally or intramuscular injection of HCG and a pregnancy test is performed about 12 days after blastocyst transfer. Embryos surplus to the one which is transferred can be frozen, cryopreserved in liquid nitrogen for use later if the initial transfer fails or if the couple want a second child two or three years after the first. Let's look in more detail at some of the aspects of this cycle and of the many um, add-ons and um, twists and turns in the journey that can be applied and perhaps the most important of all of the aspects of IVF is the initial planning consultation where the menu is used to select the appropriate treatment individualized to the needs and the problems presented by each couple. So for example one of the first things we have to do is to choose the dose of FSH we're going to inject 
This is done by with reference to the ultrasound antral follicle count and the serum measurement of AMH, because if someone has uh, high levels of these markers indicative of a high ovarian reserve, they're at risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome if we overdose with FSH. These are frequently young patients with polycystic ovary syndrome, and the testing with AMH can identify those at risk, allowing us to tailor the treatment with a low dose of FSH, using a GnRH antagonist to avoid premature ovulation. That allows us to use a GnRH agonist trigger to produce release of LH from the pituitary, giving an LH surge similar to the natural surge, allowing egg collection 36 hours later, with mature oocytes being collected and fertilized. Using this approach pre prevents prolongation of the effect of the trigger leading to OHSS, but it is unlikely to produce pregnancy from a fresh embryo transfer. So the final step of a GnRH antagonist cycle with an agonist trigger is usually to freeze all embryos and transfer an embryo later. This has almost completely removed the risk of significant OHSS from IVF in 2020. The alternative approach is to use FSH with a GnRH agonist to control premature risk of LH surge and ovulation. The, the, the GnRH agonist produces an initial um, increase in circulating FSH and LH, followed by a long-acting suppression. So we tend to use the agonist in a long protocol, starting on day 21 of the cycle before the IVF begins. So starting the agonist in the middle luteal phase means that the little surge in FSH and LH takes three or four days, and then the suppression occurs before we start the stimulation with FSH. That makes the whole protocol lengthy, hence the name long protocol, and more burdensome for the patient. And that's important because we'll only achieve a pregnancy in, at best, 40-45% of cases, even with young patients. And we want the couple to come back for further cycles if the first one is not successful. So reducing the patient burden with a GnRH antagonist cycle, which is a lot quicker as well as safer, has been an improvement in maintaining patient confidence and having them come back for a second attempt if the first is not successful. So during the injection of FSH, using the agonist or antagonist alongside, we have to monitor the growth of follicles using frequent ultrasound and serum measurement of estradiol, checking that follicle growth is satisfactory. If the growth is um, not adequate, it's possible to increase doses of FSH, and if the growth is looking too florid, then to decrease dose of FSH, although the likely impact of this on the final um, number of follicles is small, because once follicle recruitment has occurred, the um, ability of regulating dose of FSH to alter this is, is uh, fairly small. So we have to give the trigger at the end of the period of stimulation, usually about 10 to 12 days of FSH is sufficient. And the traditional trigger was 10,000 units of HCG. We now use a recombinant HCG, Ovidrel, or in certain circumstances with an antagonist control cycle, we would use the GnRH agonist to minimize risk of OHSS in the group of patients who are deemed at high or moderate risk. After the trigger, the oocytes will mature and ovulation will occur about 42 to 46 hours after the trigger. So to have an element of safety, 
Egg collection is done 36 hours after the trigger is given using sedation or general anesthesia with a transvaginal ultrasound. It's easy to identify the large fluid-filled follicles in the ovaries, uh, which are normally sitting just at the vaginal vault lateral to the uterus, and the needle is used to aspirate each follicle. Follicular fluid is passed to the embryologist, who identifies the cumulus and oocyte complex, takes that to the laboratory for processing. At the same time, we need the sample of semen from the male. Usually this is produced by masturbation um, on site at the laboratory. Sometimes there is no um, access to ejaculated sperm, so it's possible, for example, in a man who's had a vasectomy to perform a percutaneous aspiration of the epididymis to produce, to obtain sperm. In some cases of, of azospermia, it's possible to do a microsurgical testicular aspiration of sperm using open surgery uh, with an operating microscope. And even in men with Klinefelter syndrome, in approximately 50%, it's possible to find little islands of sperm that can be used for IVF. Sperm can be frozen and used months or years later, which is a useful option for a couple in whom the man is, uh, has had to have chemotherapy for cancer. Often there will have been cryopreservation of sperm before the chemotherapy, and that can be used later in an IVF context. The quality of embryology laboratory science has improved enormously over the past three decades, and that's the main reason that success rates in IVF are superior to those that we've seen in the past. Uh, oocytes uh, and uh, embryos are now cultured in a video time-lapse system this allows um, a single image of each developing embryo to be made every few minutes. So over the course of five days of incubation, each embryo has its own little video loop showing its development. And this can be used using an AI system to identify which embryo has the optimum chances of producing a pregnancy after transfer, allowing grading of a cohort of embryos and also identifying those which and also identifying those that will or will not be suitable for cryopreservation uh, for use later. After five days of incubation, the option is then either to perform a fresh embryo transfer or to freeze all embryos. If we're doing a fresh embryo transfer, it's important to give some luteal phase support. Um, the um, normal endometrium is unstable. Um, and if implantation occurs, it's unlikely to progress to pregnancy um, following superovulation unless luteal support is given. Uh, this can either be in the form of vaginal progesterone pessary used two or three times a day, um, or an injection of HCG every three days, day three, six, and nine after egg collection. Injection of HCG should not be used if there's any risk of ovarian hyperstimulations, as this can make the syndrome worse. Otherwise, the two have an equivalent pregnancy rate. Many women find the use of progesterone pessary vaginally over many days quite burdensome and unpleasant. And so if that has been a problem in the first cycle, it's useful to resort to HCG injection in the second cycle. Once the um, five days is reached and the blastocyst is ready for transfer, the process of embryo transfer is usually quite straightforward, using a Cusco speculum to identify the cervix, the external cervical os is then cleansed with saline or culture medium. A soft um, plastic catheter is then passed just to the um, uterocervical junction. 
and then using ultrasound an inner catheter is run along this outer catheter the blastocyst is at the tip of the inner catheter and is then injected into the uh, and then reach your cavity in about 10 microliters of culture medium. The catheter is then withdrawn and it's possible to see the dot of fluid on ultrasound in uh, lying within the uterine cavity. Following transfer and the luteal phase support, serum HCG is measured um, 12 to 14 days after the embryo transfer to see if there's an early pregnancy. Pregnancy um, is then monitored with serial HCG and an early ultrasound to identify fetal heart activity two weeks after the first positive HCG test is obtained. If embryos are frozen, they can be replaced later. There are three options for frozen embryo transfer, either monitoring the natural cycle to identify the natural LH surge with um, ovulation the next day, an embryo transfer five days after the surge because the blastocyst is five days old, Alternatively, if the woman doesn't have a good ovular cycle, use of oestrogen uh, tablet to produce good endometrial development, followed by um, continuing oestrogen plus vaginal progesterone to um, produce a secretory endometrium, can use an artificial cycle for embryo transfer. Or thirdly, in someone who's anovular, low-dose FSH can be given to induce ovulation and then embryo transfer performed at the appropriate time after a triggered LH surge using HCG. Pregnancy rates in randomized trials are similar using the three methods. My own preference in someone who has a nice regular cycle is to use natural cycle transfer. It gives a good pregnancy rate with minimal medication, which many women seem to prefer. One of the major choices that couples can make is to have embryos biopsied rather than transferred. Um, a small hole is cut in the opposite pole to the inner cell mass at the blastocyst stage, um, allowing biopsy of the trivectoderm. This can be analysed um, to look at the carrier type of the embryo to check whether it is euploid with normal chromosomes or whether there is an aneuploidy. One of the problems is that we biopsy several cells and sometimes the results from each cell are not identical, producing a diagnosis of a mosaic embryo. And should that be the only embryo available for transfer, in some circumstances, transfer is possible, but the pregnancy rate is lower and the miscarriage rate higher than with an embryo which is uniformly euploid on biopsy. And these are quite complicated concepts to discuss with couples and often need the assistance of a genetic counsellor to make sure that they understand the implications of what they're doing. The majority of embryo biopsies are merely to look at the ploidy of the embryo, Transfer of a known euploid embryo has a higher pregnancy rate of transfer of an embryo which uh, is of unknown ploidy, particularly, and this is the case in many couples, if the woman is nearer to age 40 or over age 40, uh, the majority of embryos will be aneuploid and therefore identifying the euploid embryo avoids multiple negative transfers or miscarriages. If there is a known genetic problem in the family, for example, if the couple are both carriers of a mutation for cystic fibrosis, it's, probably to use, it's possible to use targeted gene testing to identify whether the embryo has um, homozygosity for the recessive mutation or whether there is a heterozygous or homozygous normal embryo. This uh, is a very civilized alternative to uh, testing at 11 weeks of pregnancy to identify these problems leading to pregnancy termination 
rather than in the IVF um, scenario, merely avoiding transfer of an embryo that's known to be affected. IVF works better now than it did in the past, but the majority of couples will not achieve a pregnancy after their first embryo transfer even now. If the woman is young and the couple are willing to persevere, it's likely that they will achieve a pregnancy with good outcome if they are able to do two or three or four cycles. This is obviously at significant financial cost, mitigated to some extent in Australia by Medicare, but also with a significant emotional burden for both partners. Um, this does produce strain on the relationship and causes for many women and many partners a significant amount of distress and counselling is a critical part of what we do and is offered to all couples at all stages of the treatment pathway. Many couples will resort to a, a large number of add-ons and adjuvants. The world of alternative medicine is very active in Australia and many women will have consulted with a naturopath, a homeopath, a traditional Chinese uh, physician, um, and maybe using a number of different adjuvants and add-ons, um, despite um, frequent um, pub publications from professional bodies such as the Fertility Society of Australia, American and European bodies that criticise the evidence in favour of most of these um, adjuvant approaches. Most of them seem to be harmless and if they give some degree of psychological support to the couple, it's difficult to argue against them using them if they wish to spend their hard-earned money and time in following these approaches. But randomised trials generally do not show that they can improve the outcome of an IVF cycle. The most critical thing when, when contemplating IVF is for the woman's age at the start of the cycle. And so we encourage couples to consider becoming parents at the latest when the woman is in her mid-30s. The option of egg freezing for younger patients who can then use their frozen eggs later to become pregnant or embryo freezing for couples when the woman is at a reasonably young age allows preservation of fertility as the couple uh, move along through life. And almost half of all pregnancies in Australia from IVF are now obtained from frozen embryos.